James chapter 3, verse 13. Okay, you probably heard that phrase, you are what you eat, right? Some of you are like, that's just not my favorite phrase. I really don't like to think about it, and I'm not sure I want to think about it now. But there's just a lot of truth to that statement. You are what you eat. If you pretty much got a diet of junk food, you're eating a bunch of food that is just laden with calories and cholesterol and little nutritional value, it just has a way of showing up, right? Okay, we won't have to go past that, but it, it affects you physically. It creates all sorts of problems in your life, health-wise, but not only just physically and just your overall sense of health, but it actually affects you even psychologically, okay? You are what you eat. What, what you're putting through your body has a way of affecting everything about you. And, you know, that is also true with what your diet is in terms of where you get your wisdom, your philosophy, what's guiding you in life. You are what you eat. You know, if you want to... If you'd like to have physically a high degree of health, you know that you need to eat pretty healthy most of the time. I mean, you can splurge. Bluebell every once in a while is all right. I mean, I had to do that last night with the decks playing and also, but that's okay. But if you generally, you have to eat pretty healthy. You've got to make some good, wise choices in what you're eating, and you have to exercise. You want, you want physical health? Those are some of the things that you're going to have to do. Sleep is always beneficial, right? Okay. Same is true when it comes to to living a life that is full of the joy and the glory of God. If you want such a life, then you know what you need to have? You need to have what the Bible calls wisdom from above. You need godly wisdom. Now, wisdom has been prized throughout the centuries by both believers in God and and people that didn't know God. They were even pagans. So, for instance, like uh, the Roman philosopher Cicero, this is what he said about wisdom. He said, Wisdom is the best gift of the gods. He considered that wisdom came from these man-made gods. And he also said he's, that the mother of all good things really comes from wisdom. But the Greeks, uh, they, their understanding of wisdom was, it was philosophical. It was a philosophy. It was theory. It was speculative knowledge. And they prided themselves in, in, in exploring wisdom, but it all had to do with the idea of conveying and communicating thoughts regarding theory, uh, philosophy. The Jews, and, and it carried right on through the New Testament with believers in Christ, have a very different view of wisdom. Yes, they believe that it's an understanding of knowledge, and you have to under, have knowledge and understanding, but it goes far beyond just head knowledge True wisdom, according to God, actually affects your behavior. It's not just what you believe to be true, but it's how you behave. And so a person who was truly wise was one who not only knew the right thing to do, had the right perspective and priorities in life, but that person also had a behavior that matched his beliefs. If you didn't have behavior that matched the beliefs, you weren't wise no matter what you knew, because the two went hand in hand. And that's kind of how it is. The wisdom that we follow is shown by the way that we live. So it's kind of like this. Let's say one day uh, it's dark out and all of a sudden someone suddenly accosts you, okay? They take your arm and they yank it behind your back, okay? And they're, and they're about ready to assault you, okay? And so you, you could do this. You could say, uh, I don't know if you know this, but I know karate, Okay? And he's like, really? And he's not acting a whole lot real scared. And then you're like, okay, well, I'm, I know what I'll tell him. You know what? I had a kung fu lunchbox when I was a kid. Do you know that? 
Okay, and at this point, he's like, whoa, Kung Fu Lunchbox, maybe this guy does know karate. But the point of the matter is, it doesn't matter what you say that you know. Can you actually put it into play when the situation calls for it? It's not enough to say that you got a Kung Fu Lunchbox or you know karate. If you can't demonstrate it when, the, when the, it's called for, you don't have what it takes. You really don't know. Or what you do know is not simply good enough for the situation that is being called for. And that's how it is with wisdom. It's not enough to say, you know, I've got wisdom. Or I go to a church. I go to a church where they actually teach the Bible. And, and I've, I have wisdom. I know a lot of things. It is not enough unless you can put it into play. The idea that just because you could pass a little test or a theology exam, or you know a few Bible verses, or you can win a little quiz, does not translate to the fact that you have wisdom unless what you know comes into play with how you live. That's what wisdom is. And frankly, life gives us all sorts of circumstances that give us an opportunity to demonstrate, do we really have wisdom or not? I mean, we face relational difficulties, challenges, emotionally, financially. There are difficulties, there are decisions that need to be made. There's just figuring out where we're going to put boundaries in life. There's financial issues that we face on a day-to-day basis. There's all sorts of occasions in our life that call for wisdom. And you know if you have it, if you're able to apply what God has given us to your life. It's kind of like um, the state of Missouri. You ever seen those plates from the state of Missouri? Who knows what it says on the bottom of them? It's the show-me state, right? All right, yeah, you say you got all this stuff, but can you show me? That's really what James is going to be driving at when it comes to wisdom. Don't tell me you got it. Show me. Put it into action. And so that's what he says in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, who among you is wise and understanding? Who among you really has skill for living? That's how wisdom could be translated. And who has understanding? This is an interesting word. It was used to apply to someone who is very skillful in some different situations, like a professional or a specialist, like if you were a doctor or a surgeon or you were a craftsman, you were a specialist. He says, who in the world is, has skill for living, who can show it in how they actually live their life? He says, let him do this. If you, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, you see that, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. If you're really skillful in living, if you really are one who is partaking in God's wisdom, then let him show in how you behave. And notice what he says in your deeds, in the gentleness of wisdom. So this, this word gentle is, is a great word. It was used of, of horses that were broken and now under the control of a rider. Okay, So a wild horse is un, that's untamed, unbroken, is of little use. It can kick down fences. It might be fun to watch around and they just kind of do their own program, but they're of no use. If you wanted to plow, you wanted to ride somewhere, you had something to do. Unless the horse comes under the control of the master, it's of little use. And that is true for us. Until your life is tamed by God and you have yielded yourself to him, you're under his control. You're going to be a maverick and you're going to create problems, you do not have the wisdom of God because you're not controlled by it. You don't seek it, you don't desire it, and you most certainly do not manifest it. And so he says, if you have true wisdom and understanding, show by your good behavior and your deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But look at verse 14. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. And what he's going to do now is he is going to start actually detailing what does the wisdom of the world look like. You see, the wisdom of the world, it's compelling to our flesh. And that's what he says. If you've got bitter jealousy, you want what another person's have. And it's not your right to have it, but you want it and and it creates bitterness in your life. You don't have the wisdom of God. Bitterness is, is like drinking poison and hoping someone else will die. Okay? And that's when you have bitter jealousy. You, you take it all in and really it destroys you. You want what another person has, whether it be their position, their possessions, some sort of status, something they've got, they've achieved, whether it be their spouse, their kids, their job, whatever. You want it and it creates bitterness in your heart. There is bitter jealousy and he says, and Selfish ambition. You're driven by the God of self. It's all about you. It's a me-centered world. He says, what are you thinking? If you live with bitter jealousy, if you are selfish, selfish ambition, notice what he says. He says, you're lying. He says, do not be arrogant. You see that in verse 14? And so lie against the truth. You don't have real wisdom or the wisdom that comes from above the wisdom from god because it's being manifested by the fact that you've got you're selfish you're jealous you're bitter these things aren't from god he says this actually completely contradicts the truth this is so foreign to relationship with christ and what god has given us in his word see god doesn't want us to live with the wisdom of the world but the reality is, it is the, it is the path that most people take. In fact, he's going to describe it. He's going to say that this wisdom of the world, it contradicts the truth. It's the wisdom from below. And he's going to actually start telling you what does this look like. Verse 15, he says, this wisdom, that's not from that from which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, and demonic. You see, when you're operating under what do I want from my life, and it's all about me, and you are jealous for what other, your others have. You live on a horizontal level. He's going to say, this kind of wisdom is prevalent throughout the world. He says, first of all, it's earthly. It's based on a humanistic worldview. A humanistic worldview does not have any account for God. There's no focus on God, no direction, no intense desire for him. It doesn't see that any, any importance in honoring, reverencing, following God, his wisdom. It's all about you. It's earthly it let me give you some of the mottos that you find in earthly wisdom i'm sure you've heard these like do your own thing have it your way okay that's more than for mcdonald's right many people think you just do it your own way or how about this one just look out for number one it's all about you you see this is an earthly wisdom it's wisdom from below it's a closed system that does not have any access to god does not consider god and part of the equation not only is it earthly but notice what else he says it's not only it's of the world but he also says it is natural it appeals to your natural senses it's fleshly it's sensual and so the wisdom from below Appeals to our base natures, wanting to find satisfaction in life apart from God or how he's revealed to find that satisfaction in his word. And so it's it causes it wants us to indulge and our world esteems it 
It endears us to it. It encourages us to go ahead and pursue whatever you feel like doing. It doesn't, don't consider how it might affect another person. Don't even think about if there's going to be long-term consequences in your life. Don't worry about those things. It causes you to be myopic, focus on the here and now and what you want. And think of how many people make crazy decisions, oftentimes leads to great wreckage in their life because of the pursuit of what he's calling natural, wisdom that is natural. It makes sense to the natural man. And by the way, this is the normal course. This is the wisdom of the world. And you will follow it. And you will, because it makes sense at the time. You don't ever consider God because God's not part of your equation. You just consider, hey, this sounds like fun. Or, hey, I'm only in college once, so I may as well do it, right? I mean, oh, the time I'll get my life straightened out later. And I'll just kind of pursue this path now. And it leads to wreckage. And he goes, not only is it earthly, not only is it natural, but he says, let me tell you the true source of this kind of wisdom. It's demonic. It comes from Satan himself. Satan himself wants you to buy into this system. And he always has an alternative to what God has. I mean, you find that throughout the Bible. You find at the very beginning, even at the very end, Satan presents a counterfeit trinity. And it makes sense to the world that, hey, we want a world leader and we want this guy to rule over us. He's always in the idea of giving a counter, always presenting a counterfeit to the world. And so he does with wisdom. He has a counterfeit wisdom, but it is demonic. And let me just tell you, this wisdom, this wisdom from below, it is being pumped into our homes right now at an average of seven hours a day. It comes from the media. It comes from movies. It comes from mainstream culture. And it's what the idea is it just keeps washing over you over and over and over again. And pretty soon you begin to think like, yeah, this is normal. This is, this is what life is supposed to be like in the United States or where I live. It keeps washing over you. It keeps pouring over you. And pretty soon, if you have no direct counter to it, you begin to abide by the world's principles. And so let me just tell you that before you were in Christ, all you could know is the wisdom of the world. That's all you know. Let me, let me read to you a very familiar passage but it speaks to this issue so very clearly. It's found in Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to just listen to it as intently as possible. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's speaking to a former way of life. He says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You once walked in that way. And he says, among them, we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. What our flesh wanted, we went after, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's how we once lived. But then he says, but God, God broke in. And he changed our life. He changed our perspective. He said, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. We, have, we enter into a new reality, a reality in which we are in Christ. 
And we no longer have to abide by the wisdom of this world. But friends, let me tell you, if you do not focus on Christ and truly abide by the wisdom he's given in his word, enabled by his spirit, you will follow the wisdom of the world. And let me tell you what it looks like. He says, verse 16, it's going to cause devastation in our lives. Where where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. You know where we find things like anger and bitterness and resentment and lawsuits, divorce, racial and ethnic and social divisions? You know where all this comes from? It comes from following the wisdom from below. It comes from living in disregard to God. And so we find a world that is absent of love, of intimacy, of trust, of fellowship, of harmony. You know why? Because it's abiding by a world system, a world system of wisdom. You you probably know this, but we're living in the me generation. And people that live in the me generation that truly abide by the principles of it's all about me, you know, they're willing to sacrifice friendships, marriages, even an unborn child through abortion, if it does not fit in their plans. It's not what they want at that time. And they're willing to make that sacrifice. And the wisdom of the world says that is just fine. That's the way to go. It causes, like he says, what James says, friends, if you've got jealousy, selfish ambition, these should be red flags You're abiding by the wisdom of the world and there is going to be disorder and every evil thing. It produces strife. It breaks down fellowship. And what? remember, James is a pastor, right? And he's writing to believers. And this is the problem. Then, now. The wisdom of the world has made entrance into the doors and the hearts of the church. And people are living by the wisdom of the world. You see, when the wisdom of the world takes root in a church, spiritual revival has been stayed. The idea of vibrancy for God and laying it all out and yielding our lives fully to him, that goes out the window because it's all about you. That's what the world keeps saying. And so spiritual fervor in a church diminishes. Furthermore, there's going to be the rise of conflict, division, splits, strife, because what's taking place is that the world system has, is bringing about a corruptive influence in the lives of the people in the church who are supposed to be following a completely different way of wisdom. And so in the world, the wisdom of the world, provide, uh, it actually produces conflict. It produces crimes, battles, even the wars of the world. Let me assure you, every war that has been started, it made sense to a lot of people. Where did that come from? The idea we're going to just kill people and take them over. It comes from the wisdom from below. And where does this all get started? This wisdom from below? It all gets started at the very beginning. In fact, God actually records it in Genesis chapter 3. In the beautiful Garden of Eden, that's where we have the birthplace of man's wisdom. And you're probably pretty familiar with it, but in Genesis chapter 3, this is the scene. Now, the serpent, the devil, actually taking the form of a serpent, he was more crafty than any beast of the field in which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? So the serpent approaches Eve and says, hey, did really, did God say 
that you shouldn't uh, eat from any tree of the garden? And do you remember what she said? Eve said, whoa, 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 well, actually, no, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, no, we may eat. In fact, there's only one thing he said, but he said, but, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, uh, God said, you shall not eat from it. In fact, Eve actually adds that little thing that maybe Adam said, you don't even touch it. Don't eat it. Don't even touch it. Okay. It's like shopping. Just, just don't even touch it. Okay. Just leave it alone and you won't want to feel like you have to buy it. All right. Don't eat from it and don't touch it. And then the serpent said, really? And he said, the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die because she said, you know, the day that if I touch it or eat it, I will die. The serpent said, oh, no, 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 no. You surely shall not die. Who told you such a lie as that, that, that you're going to die? And then he said, the serpent said this, for God knows that the day that you, from which you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You see, you're living without. There's something missing in your life. Your eyes will be opened if you actually eat from this particular tree. And it, in fact, you will be like God and you're going to know the difference between good and evil. You'll be like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. You'll be like him. You see, what Satan did is he appealed to the lust of the, the eyes. OK, that that apple looked good. That fruit or whatever it was looked good. The lust of the flesh, this will satisfy you and the boastful pride of life. You will be like God. And so verse 6 in Genesis 3, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, this would be satisfying. And that it was a delight to the eyes. It was attractive, alluring, appealing. She was so fixed on it and focused on it. She had forgotten what God had to say and she was so focused on that fruit. It was, it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. You know what she did? She took it. She ate it. And she had an Adam who's standing by there doing nothing. Should have jumped in and just hacked off that serpent's head with his hoe. He watched this whole thing and he ate it. And it plunged humanity into wreckage. It is the wisdom from below. And ever since sin makes entrance into the world, so comes the entrance from the wisdom of man. And there is this continual struggle. We live it today. Friends, if you are drinking the world's Kool-Aid, do not be surprised that you have the world's results in your life. What did you expect? What did you expect by disregarding God and just abiding by this world system? Especially if you knew better. Well, there is an alternative. There's an alternative to just living by the wisdom from below. There is the wisdom that comes from God. It is the wisdom from above. And that's what James is doing. He's saying, if you're manifesting the wisdom from below, you need to stop. There is a wisdom that comes from God. And it leads to life that is truly full in him. He says in verse 17, he says, let me just tell you about the wisdom that comes from God. First of all, it comes from above. He says, verse 17, but the wisdom from above. God offers something more than a humanistic worldview. God offers more than what man can make up. God offers wisdom that is divine that comes from him. And this wisdom that comes from him, it, it's heavenly. It makes us full, whole, complete. And so it comes from God. And let me just tell you, it is manifested in God's son. You and I who are in relationship with Christ, as we, we focus on him, we worship him, we follow him. 
He gives us wisdom as a, res- as a result of our lives being united with him. But this wisdom also he has had written down in his book. That is one of the reasons why Christians spend time regularly in God's word, because this book gives us insight and wisdom from God. It tells us how life is meant to be lived. And furthermore, God has given us his Holy Spirit that actually allows us to do what he's asked. God doesn't ask us to do something we cannot do. So what he does is he enables us through his Holy Spirit that that which we could do not do apart from him, we are able to do through him. It is wisdom that comes from above. Remember when Jesus came onto this earth and when he was here, he gave a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And remember how it concluded? He said this, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, let me tell you what he's like. He is like a wise man. You have to come to Christ. You have to believe in him. You turn from your sin, from the ways of the world, all that fleshly stuff that you've done, all that avoidance of God, all that self-centered activity, all that sin, and you trust in Christ. You come to him and you act on his words. And you know what happens? You begin to live with the wisdom from above. You begin to live wisely. Wisdom from God, it not only comes from above, it also cultivates godliness in our life. And he's going to describe what does wise living really look like. And as we go through this, I want you to see how much of it has the context of relationship. Okay? It's certainly going to benefit you as a person. But the wisdom from God really shows or manifests itself most clearly in the context of how we relate to one another. And what we find in verses 17, 18, and 18, this is really a picture of maturity. This is what it looks like to live in Christ. This is what wise living is meant to be. And by the way, this is what he wants us all to look like. God is in the process of manifesting these characteristics in our lives. And so he's going to tell us about this wisdom from above. It is, first of all, it is pure. Like God himself, it is freely uncontaminated by sin. God wants us to live in purity. And so he gives us wisdom that is pure. It produces wholeness, purity in our life. And, and so if we're abiding by God's wisdom, when we encounter the unholiness of this world, whether it be any sort of wretched little show on TV or wicked thoughts that we're supposed to pursue or things on the Internet or we're, we're encouraged to just let our anger or our wrath go or focus on greed or it's all about money, any of those things, when we're following God's wisdom, we're like, no, I'm, I'm simply not because God's wisdom gives me purity. I'm clean. I'm forgiven. I'm a new creature. He also says his wisdom is peaceable. It leads and brings about peace. Notice what he says. It's first of all, it's first pure and then it's peaceable. Let me just tell you a little bit about peace. Peace is not merely the absence of war. It's the wholeness and completeness and fullness in life. God's wisdom gives us what we most yearn for. Every single person wants peace. Peace in their heart, peace in their soul, peace in their mind, peace in their family, peace in their neighborhood, peace in their school, city, state, peace in our world. But peace is only found in God. And until we get that one lesson straight, we're going to have strife because that's what the wisdom of below produces. But God gives us Peace and purity 
And peace, excuse me, is actually an outgrowth of purity. And notice what else he says about the wisdom that God wants to produce in our life. It's the wisdom from above. It's pure. It's peaceable. It is gentle. This, this word gentle could be translated like sweet reasonableness. It, it has the idea that this person will not com- compromise the truth, but he also isn't a person that's just creating disorder. Carl Sandburg described Abraham Lincoln as a man of velvet steel. Velvet steel. That would be a good way of describing this word gentle. There is something about how you conduct yourself with others that is soft, loving, but at the same time, you're not just wishy-washy and you'll go with the wind. You've got firmness, strength. You are of stability. You've got power. You have the ability to be gentle because you have a strength that resides within, that strength that comes from God. And hence, a gentle person, he makes consideration for others. He is considerate and makes allowance for their feelings, for their weaknesses, for their needs. He's gentle. He has strength that comes from God. And notice he says, if peaceable, gentle, there's a ne- here's our next word, reasonable, or has a ability to be willing to yield. This person is not stubborn. They are easy to, give along, to get along with or to work with. And they can actually disagree without being disagreeable. Where does that come from? It comes from God. God wants you to be like that. He doesn't want you to be cantankerous and miserable and, and bitter and unfun to be around with. He wants to create in you a person that is reasonable, willing to yield. You don't have to have it always your way. You're God's man or God's woman. And then he keeps going. He says it's not only reasonable, but full of mercy and good fruits. When the Bible speaks of someone full of like full of the spirit or full of mercy, it means that you are under the control of the spirit or under the control of mercy. You are a merciful person. You actually are concerned with those who are suffering pain and hardships. When you when you are called upon to forgive, you want to forgive because you are merciful. How is that going to happen? It's only going to happen when you're willing to follow the wisdom of God and do so through the strength that God provides. You're full of mercy. And also, he said, good fruits. Good fruits are the character, the attitudes, the actions, the qualities that actually manifest like love and joy, peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, God wants to manifest this in your life. And he says, you're full of mercy and good fruits. You're unwavering. That has the idea that you're not just going with the wind of popularity. This was a word that was actually used of politicians who would like try to figure out which way the crowd or the general populace was going. And so for like in one instance, if it was popular or favorable to esteem a a particular individual one day, you'd do so. But maybe the next day it wasn't. So you'd actually badmouth him. You were just changed with the wind. It'd just be like, here one day, up the other. That's not how it's supposed to be with us. Us in Christ who are walking in God's wisdom, we are unwavering. We have a steady conviction. We're not going with the tide of the culture in and out and here and there and being moved around by every wind of doctrine that's out there. There is a stability in the course of our life that reflects that we're walking in the wisdom of God. And then he says, and without hypocrisy. One thing that God does not want for his people is that we are 
actors. And that's what the word hypocrisy meant. And a hypocrite was an actor. And so on stage, what they would do is they put on these masks, okay? So for whatever person they were representing, if this is an angry person, a happy person, sad person, whatever, they put on this mask and they'd wear it. And everybody knew that, that they really weren't that person. They were just playing that role. And that's really where we get the idea. A hypocrite is, is someone who is a phony. They're really, they're really not that way, but they're pretending. God doesn't want us hypocritical. He wants us genuine and authentic. If you got a Sunday show where you show up with your little Bible as like a little ornament, like at Christmas time, and you put on a nice show and you have the right words and you can smile and put all that little charm on there. But on Monday, you're a completely different creature. You're the one who's kind of on the lead with the the joke that's totally inappropriate. You're cutting corners. You're living in the gray, if not the black, on some of the decisions that you're making. You are... um, a corruptive influence on your family or your friends. You've got a dual life going on. Friends, you're walking in the wisdom from below. The wisdom from above, it's, it's unhypocritical. It's, it is the real deal. God's man, God's woman, non-compromising, they are the real deal. They're not putting on a show. The only way, friends, this is going to be possible is if we're in Christ we're walking in his spirit. We're taking in his word. Apart from that, we'll probably just keep abiding by the wisdom of the world. And he says, verse 18, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And it's kind of the idea of the, of the fruit that's being harvested. And it's like the farmer harvests his fruit, but he actually takes some of those seeds and he actually puts it back in the ground and it creates another harvest, more fruit. And that's what's happening here. This, this person here that's walking in the wisdom from above, he not only is producing right, having God produce righteousness in his life, right living in his life, but in peace he is sowing more seeds that is creating a more bountiful harvest. And that's kind of what our life is supposed to be like. We're like farmers. And there's fruit that is coming from our life and love and joy, peace. We're what he's described as wisdom. We're full of mercy. We're caring. We're gentle. At the same time, we're sowing these seeds, which is continually making an bountiful harvest. And so we don't farm land. We sow seeds in the hearts of human lives. And God brings about a rich and a bountiful harvest. So, friends, it's pretty simple. Worldly wisdom is going to have and produce worldly results. Spiritual wisdom, on the other hand, will produce spiritual results. Our source of wisdom is pretty much going to determine our way of life. And what James is saying, like any pastor that really cared about his people, it's like, absolutely go with God and his wisdom. Because the wisdom of this world is corruptive. It creates division. It leads to a complete devastation of life. So what do you really believe? Honestly, what do you really believe? What you really believe will actually determine how you behave. You know, and as we go through these qualities, how many of us can be described like selfishly ambitious or jealous or full of bitterness? Even as even those of us who are in Christ, haven't you seen selfish ambition at times even creep up or bitterness or that you're jealous? 
All of this points to our great need for the Savior. The only thing perfect about Fellowship Bible Church is its Savior, Christ. If you're trying to figure out and you're brand new here, what is this church all about? This church is all about Jesus Christ. We know that we are great sinners and we have placed our faith completely in Christ, who is a tremendously great savior. And we desire to go his ways. We want to forsake the world and its system and its wisdom. And we want to walk in the newness of life and in God's wisdom. And yes, we fail. And if we do, we fall and we stumble. We're going to confess our sin And we know that God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we desire him. And friends, just as as pastor, one of the pastors here. I'm a little bit scared. I'm scared that we are going to subtly buy into the world system if it's not already happening already. And they already know there's great competition But if we don't truly direct our focus and fix our hearts upon Christ, it is inevitable that we will walk in the world's wisdom and the magnificent things that God is doing through the body of believers here at Fellowship Bible Church will diminish. Spiritual fervency will go out the window. The desire for evangelism and seeing the gospel go to our friends, our neighbors, our country, our world will stop and cease and we'll end up like some nice little country club on the west end of Waco. I would never want that. But friends, that will be the course unless there's a fervency to walk in the wisdom of God. So just some basics on application, friends. We have to long for wisdom. We have to, above all else, we have to crave it. We have to want what God wants to give. And I know there's great competition. There's money, careers, filling up your life with activities, I, I face the exact same issues. But we've got to want God and his wisdom more than those things. We have to seek first the, his kingdom above all else, else we're going to settle for something far less. So we have to long for wisdom. We've got to crave it. Friends, we need to ask the Lord. Remember how this book began in James chapter 1, verse 5? He says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, you know what, what does he say? Just ask him, let him ask God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to you. Do you lack wisdom? Ask God. Keep asking God. He will give you wisdom you need for all the circumstances of life. And let me tell you something else that is, going to be, that is very helpful in walking in God's wisdom is to walk with wise people. Walk with the wise Proverbs 27:17 says iron sharpens iron so one man sharpens another. There's something about having friends, comrades that are truly seeking God and his wisdom and manifesting it in their life that sharpen us. On the other hand, the converse is true. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. If our, the people that are truly influencing our life, like, I'd really like to be like her or him, and they're going a direction that is opposite of God and abiding by the world's system and wisdom, it will affect you if it's not already. Find some friends that are serious about Christ. And I'll tell you, one of the joys of being a part of fellowship is that there are hundreds of people like that. It is awesome to be around believers that are serious about their Savior. Let me give you just one other. Demonstrate the wisdom from above. 
hey, it's not enough that you know a lot about this book until a lot of this book is being lived out in your life. There is a great need for our kids to see it, our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, to see what does it look like to someone whose life is given over to God and walking in his wisdom. So, friends, I just want to ask, what do you want? What is ultimately most important in your life? Remember uh, King Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 3? God gave him a unique opportunity. The situation was this, is that he, was, he had fallen asleep and God then approached him. And in this dream, he said, ask me, ask what you wish me to give you. What do you want? What do you really want? And it was amazing. Solomon could have whatever he wanted. God says, ask me and I will give it to you. And then Solomon started recounting God's faithfulness to his father and his loving kindness. His focus was on God, his faithfulness, his loving kindness to his father, to his family, instead of the things of the world. And so after kind of recounting how God had been so faithful and full of loving kindness, this is what he asked, quote, so give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. If you're really saying I could have whatever I want, Solomon says what I would need and what I want most, I want your wisdom. That's what I truly want. And God said, you know, because you didn't ask for a long life or for the riches or for the heads of your enemies, but you asked for discernment to understand and justice, behold, I'm going to give it to you according to your words. In fact, God said, I'm going to give you all those other things as well. But you asked and desired and sought after that which is most important. Me and the wisdom that comes from me. I'm going to give it to you. What do you want? God said, hey, ask me. Ask me anything you'd like. What do you want? How many of you would ask for, well, you know, I'd really like the head of my political enemy. Or I'd really like, I want a long life. <sighs> I want money because money can pretty much get me anything I want. It could buy me all these experiences. I want money. Friends, if that's what you're asking for, your heart's locked into the wisdom of the world. But when we truly see the greatness of God, his loving kindness, his faithfulness, you know what we'll ask for? We'll ask for wisdom. And God says, I will richly provide it for you. You know what the great need of the hour is? It's this, for believers in Christ, living out the wisdom of God. And that is completely possible when we seek him. You know, there's a difference between living and living well. God says, seek me first and my wisdom, and I'll provide it to you. And the wisdom we follow is shown by the way that we live. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this tremendous passage right in the heart of the book of James. And it is there for a reason. For we will never overcome the obstacles to a mature faith in Christ if we simply do not have the wisdom that comes from above. And so, Father, for the people who have come here today who have never truly put their faith in Christ, they've just been following a world system and they finally see just how deep sin resides in their heart. 
how much it's all about them and not about you. Lord, would they turn from their sin and trust in the Savior this minute? And Lord, for all of us, we're just bombarded by the wisdom of the world. And yet you have given us your book. You have given us your Holy Spirit because you have given us your Son. And we are in Him. So Lord, fill us with the wisdom that comes from above. Would we learn from you and walk from you? And would we represent to this generation a people yielded to you, your ways, your will, your wisdom. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.